And this is a an ad for Formula E, not Formula One, but Formula E. And uh, we'll talk about it in a second, but let's watch a little bit of it. Okay, this this car is being launched out of a uh, out of a jet airplane or a transport airplane, and uh, the the driver's gonna. Well, we can watch it for a bit. I won't. I'll try talking over it. There goes the door, and out he goes, and gonna fly. There was you saw. You might have seen a bird cage flash by. So he parachutes out, and then uh, the car crashes, and there's a bird cage. So let's get over to the article about it. Amy Houston does a great job finding me interesting commercials. Progress is unstoppable, and I don't know quite why. The the, the creator of the of the uh, of the spot is is Nils Leonard, uh, co-founder at Uncommon. This film is the story of Formula E's journey and unrelenting progress forward, told through the. Gen 3 car and its fearless drivers, the story of an ambition to progress completely set free. I would much rather see the cars going around a course, maybe from the driver's perspective and then, you know, cutting away to the to the uh, fans' perspective. Henry Chilcott, CMO at Formula E, said, we're fast building a reputation for delivering the most thrilling motor racing on the planet. And if that's true, then I don't know why you'd shove one out of an airplane. Sorry. The solution for a cookie-less world has been in our pockets the whole time. And this is by Matt Kassan, I think, the drum just yesterday or the day before. When cookies reigned supreme, getting to relevance seemed a lot easier. Context was personalized and tended to make sense in the moment it was served up. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but you might scratch your head a little bit and say, when have my banner ads or my YouTube ads, I don't get those anymore, or my fee ads in my feed on Twitter, when have I felt like they were relevant to me? Ever. <laughs> really not ever. Okay? So that is, so there's this disconnect between the between the ad tech community and everyone else where they believe and they've been preaching it since day one on the internet now in defense of them the direct marketing world was preaching it from you know the 70s when farm journal decided that they could have a pig version and a wheat farmer version and they worked with our R. Donnelly to to put different outer wraps on their magazine. So this has been around since <coughs> the early seven or the mid 70s. Uh, so that makes it what 40, almost 50 years. Yeah, almost 50 years. And 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 here's a, f a fundamental assumption: the numbers speak for themselves. 70% of consumers want brands to show to know more about them. I really struggled with that. There's no footnote, so I wish you would have told me where that comes from. But this, I think, is kind of the where it comes from. 80% of consumers 
are more likely to buy a product that offers an experience tailored to their immediate needs. So, two questions. First, what are your immediate needs? What are my immediate needs? I'm sitting in front of a computer. You know, I'm not, I'm not shopping right now. <laughs> so maybe that's one of the problems. But I'm going to a restaurant shortly for our meetup. And uh, yes, I'm a little early. It works better than trying to live stream it. And I'm thinking, hmm, if I don't want a lot of carbs, I don't want beer, I think I'll have a bourbon. Because <laughs> that's pretty safe. Scotch is a little touchy. Um, but bourbon's really pretty safe. So I'm in the mood for that. And if you had a bourbon, if you were listening to this right now and you put me up a bourbon, I probably wouldn't care. Because I don't care about bourbon much. But, um, and that's, Okay, so that's the first question. Do we know what we need immediately? Well, if you have a flat tire alongside the road, you need a, you need a help, you need a tow truck, you need a tire. You know, it sort of depends. Even then, we don't know exactly what we need to work our way through it. Okay, the second one is... You may not know what you need, but you may know what you don't need. Right? So perhaps this question has survivorship bias in it. Perhaps what consumers are saying, since I have already kind of proven that you're not going to be able to deliver what I need, because either you don't know about it or I don't know about it. <laughs> okay? But if you ask me, would you? Be more interested in an ad or a product that for something that you needed right away than for something that you didn't need. You know, like you know, I grew up on TV. You know, we would have cross your heart bras. So I know that they lift and separate. I know that Dove creams your hair while you or creams your skin while you wash. I know that you'd walk a mile for a camel. That's a cigarette for those of you who have you know cigarette ads. I don't think have been on since the 70s, like 50 years. And I can still Winston tastes good like a cigarette should. You know all that. Um, so those got in my head. They're still there, but I never had a need for any of them. And so. Uh, so they've survived in my head without any connection to my needs, right? I can understand that I might never buy any of those products. And, and if you ask me hypothetically, would I rather see an ad for something I might need or an ad for something I'll never need, I would say I'm in the 80%. I would be more likely to buy a product that I might need than a product I'll never need, like a cigarette or a bra, just to make it equanimity, to give it equanimity. <laughs> anyway, and and what I want, I mean, what this is saying is is that they're going to give, they're going to put QR codes on all the ads, and then they're going to track where you are and all your contacts, and if you click enough ads with your cell phone out, and of course, in order to do that, in order to use a QR code. The ad has to be outside of your phone, and then the QR code gets it inside your phone. And the problem I have is oftentimes I see an ad on my computer, and you're asking me to pull out my cell phone. 
or I see it on TV, or I see it on a billboard and I'm driving along, I'm not going to click that. Now, I don't know. I'm going to look into this more from Landor and Fitch, but I just don't see people mostly clicking QR codes. Okay, they were forced into it in you know with menu choices in the in in the pandemic, but or in whatever the COVID thing was. Okay, and and then they make this claim: two shoppers might be in the same aisle at the exact same moment. They're only good within two meters, so you couldn't even tell what aisle they were in for sure. Scanning the same yogurt pot. Okay, each one of them will get get context that is only relevant to where and when but more importantly to who they are and what they like can't work so let's talk a little bit about survivorship bias okay in world war ii that the british thought that they might do better with having their planes shot down if they armored their planes and so in in in, in uh anticipation of, it, of, of putting armor on the planes, they said, well, let's see where the bullets, you know, where the, where the planes are shot the most. And maybe that'll tell us something. And so they, and so this is an actual plot of, of where and the, in the tail and the elevator area, especially. Um, they were shot up a lot. And so they were fixing, since these were the places that planes sh got shot a lot, they were fixing to armor these areas of the plane, okay? And uh, so then they, they got a statistician along, and he said, you know, you might be looking at this the wrong way, and this is my point. You might, this might, this is where the planes are getting shot up a lot. But that's because these are the planes that make it back. So you can count the holes. He said, these are not the places that need armor. These are the places you can survive being hit. What needs armor is the cockpit. If the pilot gets shot, the plane is going down. The engines, see? No planes made it back with the engines shot up. No bullet holes at all. And that's the way I feel about this personalization craze is that first of all it's impossible i couldn't personalize for tomorrow for myself okay but secondly even if it were possible you're you're using data that proves the opposite you know of course i'm more interested in something that i'm i need right now of course but that doesn't prove that you can get me you can anticipate that it just doesn't make any sense it's survivorship bias okay you're, you're proving, anyway, or it's a tautology. Okay, let's get over to this one. Seven steps to, seven steps to successful A-B testing in direct mail. And this is a wonderful article, and uh, I wish I would have known which one did better. That, that the only test here is every office hero needs a sidekick or order business catering 24-7 at easycater.com, okay, and then everything else is the same. All the dishes are the same. The you get a little spiff to get you to order. Every inch of this is the same, and the implication almost is that A B split is a, is version A and version B. Well, so let's get on. Okay, the important takeaways: continually test, right? 
continually test to improve male response. That's true. And he makes a really good and A-B testing is basic and effective way to improve program performance. And it's important to test correctly so you can read and implement the latest test results with confidence. Okay? Iterative testing it means you test and then you learn something, then you test and you learn something, leads to, cons to constant optimization and also protects you from declining response rates. Okay? Right. So you pick, so the winner, you test, test, and then the winner gets tested against. We try to beat the winner. And then we find a new winner and we try to beat that winner. Okay? Direct mail is about ongoing iterative improvement, establishing a control mailing. That's the winner, right? And so, you know, the first thing you do when you think you got a control is you mail it again. And maybe you mail it to a slightly different list. One of the things that is missing in this article is he doesn't talk about testing lists. And that often is the most significant variable that you can see. You can see twice the response or four times the response from list one list versus another list. Okay, and so and if you do that, if you're going to do an A-B split of creative along with the list test, then you got to do A-B on each on each list that you test. So you can still do it, and that becomes then a four-way list or more, but it's a two-dimensional list that, uh, test then. And what the AB meant back in the day was we used to take the printout of the lists that we were going to glue onto the envelopes and we would chop them in half. And so we would get an, an A and a B, we would every other name. Or sometimes it would be, you know, there's, oftentimes they were printed four up. So you'd get, you'd get A, B, C, D. And those would be, one would be A panel. But the idea was that we would we would randomly select by just picking the every other one and that's where the ab that's the that's the ab it's not the versions so much as it is the every other eeny meeny miny mo okay uh and uh then jeff says ab testing helps you make data driven decisions about your direct mail campaigns and that's true but ultimately what you're really trying to find is you're trying to find out which offers resonate with the marketplace. So you're really trying to find out the marketplace and their immediate needs and desires, and maybe not immediate needs, but you know where you find a market and you find a need and you fill that need. And so the whole the, the big idea of testing is to find out what your customers like. Okay? And the better you can do that, of course, the better your results. And so he's got the seven steps. Define your goals. Test one variable at a time. This is really important because if you, what most mailers do is they'll say, well, let's test this, okay? And then we have another idea, and it's completely different, like the Formula One commercial. That's completely different than the last one because I watched one from three months ago, and it was showing the cars and showing close-ups of the taillights and stuff. It was kind of, you know, that kind of thing. I don't think that was particularly or work particularly well either. I told you what you should be doing. <laughs> and then test discernible differences. In other words, you don't test the you don't test the obvious like should we have a response a means of response? Should we make an offer? Should we tell people what we're trying to get them to do? No. Those you don't test. I mean you can test alternatives, but you don't just say, well let's leave them out and let's put one in. 
that's an obvious thing. You really want those things in, you know. Uh, I, 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 I got brought into uh, Oakley sunglasses, and they showed me their mailer. And in those days, this was before the internet. I said, "Well, where? How do I? How do I respond to this?" They said, "Oh, there's an 800 number. See?" And it was in a body copy. In a, in t- <laughs> I said, "No, <laughs> that's not. Does not count. <laughs> if you can't flip it up and flip it down and know how to respond, that's not a response." So, so you fix the stupid <laughs> and also you don't test things that are trivial okay so fix the obvious fix the trivial <laughs> don't test it's in the middle there someplace and I once did a full presentation at the DMA about that okay use a big enough sample size crucial you know if you test 50 pieces of mail and you get two orders you haven't really found anything what you really want is 50 orders, and that's not completely true, but we could talk all day about sample sizes and validity and all that. Okay, ensure you make data-driven decisions, and we already worked on that. Retest to validate. The other thing I wanted to mention is, in closing, is that the, the, the process of testing, is if you do it right, is the scientific method. And the reason we do that is because we want to see incremental causal effect because once we get a good idea of causal effects if we put a puppy on there you know and then you try puppy a and puppy b versus some text or something let's say we run the puppy test over a long time we'll say well the puppy does 80 percent better response rate than a picture of the of the factory <laughs> probably would um, so then we can have a hypothesis that something with an emotional connection or something with a face can do better. Now we have uh, a, a theory, or we have actually a hypothesis, and we can test against it. We can test, then we can test a baby versus a puppy, and you know, on we go. So what we're trying to do is get the causal impact of offers or creative tests in our marketplace. Uh, one day, you know, same day, this caused this and this didn't. And then we can project those results into the future. And so then we start to build actual predictable results. And um, that was the main conclusion in Claude Hopkins' book, Scientific Advertising, 100 years old this year. Uh, but he was basing it on 50 years of testing experience with direct mailers. So I highly recommend going to scientificadvertising.com. I think the book now, the PDF download is $4 or $5. Uh, well worth it. Everybody in advertising should learn it. But basically, Jeff's article is the best one I've seen in months, if not years, on testing. But as usual, I, I, <laughs> I don't have any editorial constraints, so I will add a few things. Have a great day. Like and share. Your friends will know you're smart. Bye-bye.